Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. On today's New Statesman podcast, we'll be discussing the new Brexit news bombshells and you ask us, why has Ed Davey ruled out rejoining the EU? So we're feeling a little bit nostalgic in the New Statesman sort of podcast ether today because Brexit's back. There's been a debate raging over the news that Number 10 will be introducing new legislation this week which reportedly could legally override some aspects of the withdrawal agreement. So that's the so-called oven-ready deal that formed the basis of the Conservatives' election campaign last year. And this comes as Boris Johnson has warned of walking away from talks if a trade deal isn't reached by the 15th of October and settling for a no deal. And the UK's chief negotiator, David Frost, saying the UK would not concede on contested areas like fishing rights and state aid rules. Now, we're really delighted to be joined by Brexit guru, Anand Menon, director of the UK in a changing Europe think tank. Now, you've been on the airwaves since six in the morning, I think. So what consensus is forming? What have you picked up? Why do we think number 10 is doing this? Well, the really boring consensus, I'm afraid, is we won't know till we see the legislation. That is to say, no one has actually contradicted the story that led to this frenzy, that the government is planning legislation that contradicts the uh, deal it signed with the European Union last year. But we won't know to what extent that is the case until they publish a text. What we do know, what is abundantly clear, is that the government is ramping up the rhetoric. We saw an interview by David Frost in the Mail on Sunday. We've heard what Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, has said. Trying to do two things, I'd say. Firstly, put pressure on the EU to make concessions so that we get a deal. But equally, I think, to prepare us for no deal if that is the outcome. Because remarkably, given we're so late in the day, either outcome remains a real possibility. Now, I um, I get emails from the Conservative Party. Now, don't worry, listeners, I also get emails from the other parties too. It's just so that I can see what our leaders of each party are saying to their members. But it, the subject line was, I will not back down. And, you know, the first half of the email was all about the, um, the willingness to walk away from these talks and how, you know, we can triumph without a, a trade agreement with the EU and have some kind of arrangement with the EU like Australia's. And this is addressed from Boris Johnson. Why does he always use Australia as the example? Well, probably because it's better than outer Mongolia if you're trying to sell something, I'd have said. I mean, the fact (laughs) of the matter is there are a number of countries that don't have a trade deal with the European Union. With my nerd hat on, I should say that there are some bilateral agreements between 
Australia and the European Union. But, you know, Australia sounds like a good sort of place, a successful sort of place. So it works in that regard. I mean, the obvious fact about this is, and I, you know, I hope your, your listeners are aware of this, Australia is further away from Europe than we are. And that means that their nature of their trade with the European Union is very, very different to ours. And so I'm not sure that whilst it might be a good sort of PR stunt, I'm not sure Australia is the best comparator for our situation when it comes to trade. And and you use the word PR stunt there. I think there's always a temptation when there's stories like this that sound very much like saber rattling or muscle flexing from number ten to sort of think, oh well, they're only they're only saying this so that they can try and uh, threaten or bounce the EU into a deal. I.e., they do actually want to do a deal. Why do we assume that they do actually want to do a deal? Why don't we take their words at their face value? I don't think they want to do a deal at any price, but I still think they would rather have a deal than no deal. So while the Prime Minister has come out and said no deal would be a perfectly good outcome for the UK, he hasn't, as far as I know, said no deal would be better than a deal for the UK. And I think the reason why is if you think back to this time last year when Boris Johnson negotiated the withdrawal agreement, he came out having negotiated it and was hailed as an all-conquering hero who'd achieved the impossible. All he'd done this time last year was accept something that Theresa May had said no British Prime Minister could ever accept, which was an internal customs and regulatory border between GBN and I. But what last year taught me at least was When it comes to the politics, the details of Brexit deals don't matter. It's either whether you have a deal or not. And the second advantage, therefore, of getting a deal, I think, is it makes it far harder for Keir Starmer and the Labour Party to attack him. It'd be relatively easy to attack a prime minister who had promised to get a deal and failed. Far harder to attack a prime minister who'd promised to get a good deal and actually only got a relatively thin one, because there, I think, people start to glaze over. Okay. And what what political capital do you think they expend by undermining the withdrawal agreement that they made such a big deal, sorry to use the word deal again, <laughs> over ahead of the election last year. You know, that that was always the uh, the rhetoric that they had something ready to go. Well, what are the implications of undermining a document that you signed up to and approved and ratified only a year ago? Well, there are several. Firstly, it means I think that the EU will stop negotiating. If it proves to be the case that the UK really intends to undermine the protocol, then I think there will be grounds for suspension in the negotiations by the European Union. It It will totally sour our relationship with the Republic of Ireland because it will lead to a question as to what happens in that internal border between the north and the south of the the island. It will have an impact on how people around the world see this country if we unilaterally renege on an obligation. And to give one final practical example, which is the United States, Nancy Pelosi has already made it clear publicly that Congress and the Democrats in Congress will not ratify a trade deal with the United Kingdom unless the Irish issue was satisfactorily resolved. And that means to the satisfaction of Dublin, not to the satisfaction of number 10. And so it becomes far harder to sign those sorts of deals as well. That's so interesting. So really, by sort of giving up or or chucking the potential for a trade deal with the EU, then they could be doing the same with the US, which was supposed to be the big prize. Absolutely. But bear in mind the detail here, which is that the statement from the government about this is that this is a fallback in the event that negotiations in the joint committee fail. The Joint Committee is a technical body set up under the withdrawal agreement to negotiate the settlements in Northern Ireland. I think 
the language here was quite specific, but the interpretation has been quite general. And people have taken this to mean if negotiations with the EU over a future trading relationship fail, I don't think that's exactly what the government said, but it might be the impression the government wants to give. So, Anand, the thing that has been perplexing me today is that we've seen this story in the FT. As you said, we won't know until the internal market bill is published on Wednesday exactly what it contains. But the Prime Minister's spokesman has said that they have no plans to renege on the withdrawal agreement or the Northern Ireland Protocol. George Eustace was on the airwaves saying similar today. I just don't really understand how that could be the case. I'm interested in your thoughts on on that, basically, because you were saying about how George Eustace and the government line in general has been that it would plan to use the internal market bill, correct me if I'm wrong, to clarify certain points that weren't clear in the withdrawal agreement and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And so where those things aren't clear for Northern Irish businesses or for businesses in general to to add those clarifications, can you unilaterally clarify the contents of a bilateral agreement in UK law? Would, Would that even work? You can clarify things in UK law, but not necessarily to the satisfaction of the other partner. And therein lies the problem, that what the the Irish protocol implies is a matter of interpretation by both sides. And there were built-in enforcement and adjudication mechanisms within the withdrawal agreement, not least when it comes to state aid, which is often forgotten, the European Court of Justice. So I think the EU will balk at the notion that we can unilaterally interpret an agreement we sign with them. Uh, And that's where the problems will come in. I think the first thing that the EU will do is say we're in breach of our obligations and take us to court if that were the case, because the whole structure, and it's a rather intricate structure of the Joint Committee and so on, is meant to ensure that both sides have to agree on what happens before it actually happens. And in terms of your more sort of political interpretation of this, if you're able to give it, what do you think is going on with this FT scoop? Because I'm always very interested in the way that leaks and scoops play out and the role they play in the sort of the ecology of the political ecosystem. Is this a sort of a negotiation tactic to gain leverage? Or is this just a leak that has just genuinely come out from potentially concerned civil servants? What kind of game do you think is being played with this scoop? I mean, what I'd say to that is it's very, very hard to know and probably a lot harder for me to know than you to know because I don't attend briefings uh, or talk to government officials regularly. The government has announced a leak inquiry. So Mm. indications are that this is actually a leak that they didn't want rather than a leak that they did want. And equally, the indications are that their news grid for today didn't involve firefighting about the Irish protocol for a piece of legislation that isn't due out in a couple of days' time. That being said, it adds to the mood music that's been building up that we are prepared to do drastic things if we don't get a deal. And maybe in that sense, there are those in government that think this puts pressure on the European Union. The problem with thinking that way, I think, is this – The more this government burns trust with the European Union, the more they think, actually, we can't trust the word of this government, 
the more likely they are to ask for legally binding mechanisms to tie us into whatever we agree in a future trade relationship. And of course, it's precisely those sorts of mechanisms that number 10 refuses to sign up to because we want to regain our independence after Brexit. So I would say that if this were a tactic to put pressure on the European Union, it might end up having exactly the opposite consequences to those which were intended. Regardless of the news that's that's come out about this new legislation, the trade talks will continue. And what are the main stumbling blocks? Because the, the things that often get mentioned are those state aid rules and and fishing rights as well, which is, you know, seems to be symbolically more than economically vital. Are they the two main stumbling blocks or are they just the things that government ministers like to talk about? No, no, I think, you know, remarkable though it is, they genuinely are the two main stumbling blocks. And, you know, you can add to that the, the, the notorious level playing field, which is about minimum standards after Brexit. But I think it is genuinely the case that there is no agreement on fisheries. I'm relatively relaxed that there can be an agreement on fisheries, that there is a space for compromise. I'm slightly less relaxed about state aid because it does seem that there are some people in number 10 who are utterly obsessed with the idea of us having the freedom to do what we want when it comes to subsidies, particularly subsidies for high-tech firms. And, you know, because of that, the, the European Union is concerned that state aids will be used to give British firms an unfair advantage inside their markets, so they're concerned as well. There are ways around this. I mean, traditional trade deals tend to use uh, trade remedies. So there's an agreement that says if, if you're if you're subsidising your companies too much, we reserve the right to impose tariffs on you, for instance. But at the moment, both sides are quite a way away from this. And part of the problem, I think, is is that the pandemic has meant that political leaders haven't spent that much time on Brexit. And ultimately, whether it's fish, whether it's level playing field, whether it's state aid, it is only political leaders that have the authority to say, okay, let's give a bit of ground on that in order to get a deal. And unless they get involved, then actually that's not going to happen. And on that state aid point, since that looks to be the biggest sticking point, even more so than fisheries, basically how restrictive are the state aid rules as they would stand if the terms of the withdrawal agreement do stand, which you mean they kind of have to unless they renege on international law. But so Northern Ireland is in both customs unions, has to adhere to EU state aid rules and the UK will as a whole in cases where it could be affected or like where it might have one foot in Northern Ireland. That's like the big point of objection for Brexiteers with this deal, partly on a point of principle that they want the sovereignty to set their own state aid rules. But on a sort of practical level, how restrictive is that? Well, let me give you everyone's favourite answer here, which is we don't really know yet because it will have to go to the courts. There is a broad... Mm -hmm reading of the provisions around state aids in the protocol, which will say virtually any conceivable form of state aids in the United Kingdom will be covered. There's a far narrower one that says, actually, that doesn't materially affect Northern Ireland. So it's nothing to do with us. And we don't know until it's, this has gone in front of court. I should say a number of the Brexiteers who now object to this part of the uh, Northern Ireland protocol voted for it in Parliament this time last year. So it's hard to be all that sympathetic to the complaints now. And I wonder, actually, on a personal level, Anne, and how you feel, because you are someone who is plugged in, you know, to every in and out, up and down, all the intricacies of the Brexit negotiations, and you have been for, for all of this time. How have you felt about the latest? Is it a sense of deja vu? Or do you think this is, you know, genuinely crunch time? 
No, this is genuinely crunch time. I mean, whether we like it or not, whether we want it or not, the transition period will end on the 31st of December. And it's hard to see a legal way of avoiding that, even if the British government were to ask for it. So this time is different. This time is a fixed and binding deadline. So in that sense, there's no option for an easy extension or anything like that. I also think that talk of reneging on an international agreement that we signed less than a year ago is fundamentally new and is a different order of magnitude to anything we've heard before. So we are, I think, reaching crunch time in these talks. I think Boris Johnson has a point when he says in October we have to agree or it's going to be deeply problematic. So one way or another, by the 1st of January, we will know how this has played out. and We won't be talking again saying, now we've got this extension, what's going to happen next? And Anna, does it frustrate you slightly, as Anush says, that, that this is your area of expertise and you've been following it all along, but basically since we moved into the transition period and the Brexit deal passed in Parliament, we haven't really had much serious coverage of it. And it's only when things massively escalate that it looks like we might renege on, on an international agreement that we are talking about this again. Yeah, it annoys me from the point of view of the media only getting involved when we have headlines like this, because it seemed to me that we could have been talking a lot more about the implications for the devolved governments, for instance, a long time ago, and before Nicola Sturgeon made her remarks on another independence referendum. There are all sorts of implications stemming from Brexit, stemming from the state of the negotiations that we simply haven't spent enough time talking about. That being said, it will be churlish of me to make too much of this because, of course, we have had the pandemic and that has fundamentally altered our priorities and and, and rightly so. But I do think actually that going forward, we should learn some lessons from this in the sense that, you know, when transition ends at the end of this year, there are going to be a whole load of consequences stemming from that that we need to start thinking about and talking about quite early on, whether that is implications for the economy, implications for levelling up, implications for the constitution, for devolution, for our international relationships. Brexit means a whole series of things. And whilst the formal Brexit process itself might end at the end of this year, those implications are going to keep on haunting us for a long, long time to come. And it's best to understand them, I think. You'll be in a job for a long time yet. That was a very, very thin guy's pitch for continued employment. You're right. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on and for taking the time. And I know that you've got more expertise to impart to other media outlets, so we'll let you go. But thanks, Anand. Thanks ever so much. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. And now it's time for a section we like to call You You Ask Us. 
And thanks, Stephen, for joining us. You've been busy with your cover story this morning. So thanks for popping in halfway through. We've got a question from Gary. He says, is it wise of Ed Davey to say the Lib Dems will not campaign for the UK to rejoin the EU? So this is an interview that the new Lib Dem leader gave over the weekend, saying that the idea that he wants to revisit that issue or anyone wants to revisit that issue in two to three years time is for the birds. So did this surprise either of you that he said this? No, literally not at all. (laughs) How come? (laughs) Well, I think, I mean, I can understand why parts of the membership would be upset by this, given that the Liberal Democrats have been flying the flag for the European ideal for the past few years. But clearly, even from Ed Davies' acceptance speech, where he talked about listening to people, whether they voted for Brexit or for Remain, or they just wanted the whole thing over with, that the party is trying to listen and rebuild you could see that the party is slightly rebranding for the era post-Brexit and clearly regardless of the individual feelings within the party I think there's probably just a sense that there needs to be a new phase and that if they are to make a case for rejoining the EU that needs to be based more concretely on things that have happened after leaving if we haven't properly left yet they don't have a sound a sound basis for making that case and probably they need to let the lay of the land change in the debate before they start to make that case but yeah what what did you think Stephen? Yeah I mean I cannot overstate how unsurprised I was in fact if anything the thing I was more surprised because yeah I haven't alienated any listeners uh, since at least last week is by the fact that some people who back Leila Moran for the leadership seem honestly to have gone insane. Like, maybe because of the landslide loss. Like, I don't know, like, they, they just, they got beat so hard that, like, their sanity just flew out. Because, like, this is literally, not only is it unsurprising that Ed Davey would say this, it's, like, the, I was really, I was really taken aback at how angry some people who were kind of, like, I understand, like, why I said if you're, like, kind of, like, someone who's, join the Liberal Democrats because like you really hate Brexit and you know you're one of the like so when you join the Liberal Democrats I think I'm right in saying you can pick five photographs that, to be on the card and sort of the far and away the the one who is picked the most by new new joiners is Clegg. So I would kind of expect that that kind of like pro-European think think is a word apparently I'm inventing now thought that the coalition government was a good government that that part of the Lib Dem base would be quite taken aback by the Lib Dem leader turning around and being like, rejoin in this economy. But I am quite taken aback by people who are sufficiently involved and they like volunteered on Leila Moran's campaign saying, I can't believe that this thing that, that Leila Moran would absolutely 100% also have said, as indeed would any of the 11 Liberal Democrat MPs. I, I, I was much, actually much more taken aback by that and how febrile clearly a part of the party is about this issue. I mean, you know, Layla said to me when I interviewed her, then she was like, the party should be the candle holder for rejoin one day, but then her current priority would be to rebuild trust, not with just the Remain vote, but actually across the whole of the country. Yeah, it's just fascinating to me because it just feels like such a a non-surprise. Yeah. Okay. Well, I don't want to make this podcast boring by just agreeing with the, with the two of you, but I, I, over the years, I have been more surprised by the stances that the Lib Dems have taken on Europe than you know being surprised that Ed Davey would say a thing like this because of, like you say, because of door knocking and interviewing both Lib Dem activists and people in marginal seats where the Lib Dems had a had a look in. 
over the years, you know, both the second referendum manifesto and the revoke manifesto just seem to just seem to tip to the wrong side of the uh, the kind of feeling of fair play that most sort of average British voters on either side of the Brexit debate just sort of innately have. I don't know if you guys came across that kind of sentiment when when you were going out and about during both of those election campaigns. But it really struck me that, that both of those were quite tone deaf manifestos. So I'm unsurprised that Ed Davey would try and take a step away from from that instinct. Nevertheless, you know, these two positions were were built on, on the uncertain calculation that both the other parties have also struggled with of should we try and appeal to an aspect of the electorate that is, you know, sizable enough to be going on those huge people's vote marches and 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 to vote you know so so decisively in the European Parliament elections for example you know there has to be a party for those people and those like you've written Stephen those people haven't gone away you know remainers and the people who really don't like the idea of Brexit haven't gone away just because Brexit's going to happen and should there be a party to hoover up that sentiment still and in fact you know could it be politically expedient for a party to to keep in with those people. So you can kind of see it is it although it's unsurprising that Ed Davey said what he said it's not it's not necessarily the most straightforward political decision because those people still exist and they may find no home in his party if he's saying things like that and they may find no home in Keir Starmer's party as well. And so where do they go? And so I think that political gamble, you know, carries on even if it seems obvious to us because of the outcome of the most recent election and because of the sort of the way that politics is headed at the moment, that is the right right call to make. It's interesting because I, I realised that the question that we both answered was kind of solely yours. Is it, was it surprising to me that Ed Davey did this? I think yeah. Gary's question about it being wise is, as you say, more complicated. Because as you say, right, those voters aren't going anywhere. But, you know, a lot of them have joined the Liberal Democrats. Now, I think broadly the answer is yes. You know, not because of all of any of the kind of like, you know, electoral stuff although everything you said to completely accord with everything and you know i heard in 2017 and 2019 yeah it's very clear that if you want to explain like you know why the lib dems you know did not win St ives at the last election lost eastbourne mm-hmm. at the last election lost i always get my my norfolk's confused but i want to say northwest northwest i clearly don't want to say northwest norfolk i i'm incapable of saying northwest <laughs> norfolk you know it's clear that the, the revoke policy was an electoral problem for them but I think actually rejoin is a bad place for them for a completely different reason, which is they are the third party. Do not write in the SNP are not the third party. They are the first party in the country they actually contest elections in. You know, they're the third party. Their medium term political aim is to get to a point where they are in coalition or some form of parliamentary alliance with another party in office rejoining is not like you know it's not like a thing where you kind of like launch a bit new and go like dear eu commission we've decided after a decade of relative decline that we'd like to be back in the european union love and kisses the uk government like you know you, you have like you know to decide to rejoin is is one it's this to decide to to start the accession process and we don't know, not least because, you know, we don't know like what a no deal or four years of conservative government or yeah, about nine years of conservative government or 15 years of conservative government, however long this fairground ride of horror has has yet to run. We don't know what, what the sort of view of the average European voter will be of, of British reentry. Yeah, it's a bit like, you know, of Turkish political party saying, should we campaign to be the 
the party of, of, of EU entry if they were like the third party. And obviously it's, it's more complicated because EU entry is, is, is much less contested and seen as a more desirable aim. It's not something which is within the gift solely of British politicians. It certainly isn't in the gift of the third party. And I think, and obviously others will disagree, but I think then the reason why coalition went so badly wrong for them is they basically made a bunch of promises that the third party can never successfully guarantee in coalition and I think it's a mistake for them as they try to regrow for them to go hey I know why don't we try and you know rebuild our electoral Jenga tower to exactly the shape size and composition it was right before it collapsed and we went back to like eight MPs so I think it's it's wise for for the Lib Dems even though it may mean that they're sort of denying themselves short-term growth as the only home for committed Remainers of which there are loads. See, I think they still are really the only home for committed Remainers, given the position of the other parties. They're still, even if they aren't the party of rejoin, they're still the most obviously pro-European party, the party that just because of its track record and its whole image and its like value system is the one that will just be making probably the most persuasive case or the, the clearest case for a very close relationship with Europe in a way that Labour can't do as much because of the political complications of talking about Brexit, which has been so divisive for it. So in a way, they they are still the natural home for people who want to rejoin, even if they're slightly disgruntled with the party leadership over it. And then, as you say, I think if they end up moving to a rejoin position, that, that's like clearly something they would need to have a, like a long run up up to. I don't think it would serve them politically very well if you think about how they want to be positioning themselves for the next election I mean maybe this is just too short-termist if you know maybe Boris Johnson won't be prime minister won't be the candidate for prime minister at the next election but looking at the government as it is at the moment that clearly the the ripe ground for votes for the Liberal Democrats is people from the sort of the more centrist side of the Conservative Party who are increasingly concerned over the government's record, you know, and general sort of perceived incompetence. If you take the example of, I'm doing a really real Stephen or, or Pat thing of, of taking, if you look at the difference between Harriet Baldwin, the Conservative MP for West Worcestershire, and someone like Sarah Wollaston, who defected to the Lib Dems at the last election, you could get someone like Sarah Wollaston, who's pro EU positioning was enough for her to move over to the Lib Dems but you Mm. could never get someone like Harriet Baldwin who probably has a similar brand of conservatism to Sarah Wollaston but who sort of fundamentally believed and whose voters in West Worcestershire kind of fundamentally believed that a second referendum would be undemocratic even if they had originally voted for Remain like that is still just a, a, a strand of thinking in voters that the Lib Dems need to win over you know I mean they're the main challengers to Harriet Baldwin in the West Worcestershire constituency. I mean, she still has a really comfortable majority. But if, in theory, the Lib Dems are to have any hope of being really serious challengers in those seats, I don't, I don't think necessarily they have West Worcestershire within their sights because that's a huge majority. But like in those kinds of seats where they are the 
the cha- the main challenges and demographic changes could help them down the line. The main pillar of their opposition to the Conservatives shouldn't be over Brexit anymore. It should be over general concerns about competence and values. And like that's kind of where their growth area is. And, and they clearly don't want to alienate those types of people unnecessarily when they I think the pro-European votes are already baked in. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anusha Kellyan, and my colleagues, Stephen Bush and Alva Ray. We're produced by Nick Hilton, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.